Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This is episode 76, in which we're going to ask the big question, is it legal to spend the night at rest areas? It's not so simple. Tech Talk, we're going to talk about PD, USB-C, and many, many other letters, a tale from the road involving Africa and a motorcycle and the police, and a product review of a tent that you can't sleep in. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to episode 76. I have a confession to make. Because I'm about to be on the road for an extended period of time of about 5,000 miles, I'm actually recording this episode immediately after I recorded episode 75. So while for you it is a week later, for me I'm still kind of in the headspace of episode 75. And if there was some big news that happened, I missed it, and maybe I'll get to it in episode 77. But... We still have an episode, so let's do it. Folks, I love staying at rest areas. If I'm traveling a long distance, sleeping in a rest area is my number one place to stop. I know not everyone likes it. I know some people have security concerns, and I'm not dismissing that. I'm only speaking for myself here. But I love having access to a bathroom, running water, electricity in an emergency. I'm not, like, pirating electricity from these places, but it's nice to have a place to plug in a cell phone to make an emergency call if I have to. I love that there is some tiny level of security there as there are cameras and there's always people coming in and out in an unpredictable way. And some of them have vending machines. Some of them actually have dump stations and other things like that. So I always look for a rest area. I always feel safe sleeping there. And I always feel as though I'm allowed to sleep there because what are they for? They're rest areas. They're where you go to rest. They're where you go to take a break from driving so that you're a safe driver. All that said, it seems like it should be legal for you to stay there. And in fact, oh, it is so, so not that easy to figure out. And it does have a message for us about van life and what it means to be living in vehicles. So, what I would like to do is go down each state in the United States and show you the different laws and how difficult it is to know if you can actually sleep in a rest area or not. So alphabetically, let's start with Alabama. Alabama, no, you may not park overnight at a rest stop. Alaska, they don't even have a law about it. You can do whatever you want. Arizona, you're allowed to sleep in your car, but you're not allowed to sleep outside your car. Arkansas, you can sleep if it's for a safety issue. And every time I have spent the night in Arkansas, I promise you it has been for a safety issue. California has an eight-hour limit, but no overnight parking. I guess you have to pick your eight hours somehow in the daytime? I don't know. Colorado, nope, can't do it. Connecticut, uh uh-uh. Delaware, a four-hour limit. Florida, three-hour limit. Georgia, nope. Hawaii, Nope, although if you've driven to Hawaii, I want to hear about it. Idaho, 10-hour limit, but you have to stay in your car. Illinois, 3-hour limit, no overnight parking. Indiana, uh uh-uh, nope. Iowa, allowed for one night under special circumstances, such as emergencies, and there is no camping outside your vehicle. Kansas, allowed for one night only, you must stay in your vehicle. Kentucky, 4-hour limit, no overnight parking. I don't I don't know why they have both of those there. I, anyway. Louisiana. Nope. Maine. Uh-uh. Maryland. Three-hour limit. 
Massachusetts, no way. Michigan, four-hour limit. Minnesota, four-hour limit. Mississippi, allowed, but you have to stay in the vehicle. Missouri, allowed, but you have to stay in the vehicle. Montana, allowed, but you have to stay in the vehicle. It's like a theme with these M states. Nebraska, 10-hour limit for parking, but no overnight parking. Mm, Huh? Okay. Nevada, allowed with a 24-hour limit. Camping allowed. Thank you, Nevada. We love you. New Jersey, overnight parking. New Jersey, case-by-case basis. Interesting. New Mexico, allowed with a 24-hour limit, no camping. New York, three-hour limit, nothing overnight. North Carolina, four-hour limit, no overnight. North Dakota, allowed, but no camping. Ohio, three-hour limit, no overnight. Oklahoma, allowed. Ohio, however, allows RVs to park overnight on the turnpike. What's an RV? Hmm, that could be an interesting conversation. Oklahoma, allowed, but you have to stay in the vehicle. Oregon, allowed, but there's a 12-hour limit and you have to stay in the vehicle. Not bad. Pennsylvania, two-hour limit, no overnight parking. Rhode Island, allowed, but no camping. That's that's all it says. South Carolina, no. South Dakota, four-hour limit, no overnight parking. Tennessee, two-hour limit, no overnight parking. Texas, allowed with a 24-hour limit, but you must stay in your vehicle. Utah, not allowed overnight. Extended stays are allowed at the police's discretion. Not really sure what that means. Vermont, nope. Virginia, nope. Washington, an eight-hour limit. Stay in your vehicle. West Virginia, yes. Basically, just stay in your vehicle. Okay, we'll take that. Wisconsin, not allowed. Wyoming, sleeping in vehicles is allowed for those who need to rest to drive safely. No camping outside the vehicle or extended stays. Okay, that's all the 50 states. Did you get a theme there? Did you get a theme that basically you're not allowed to stay at rest areas overnight? That's the theme I got. How does that compare and contrast what I said at the beginning here, where it's my favorite place to stay? So here is the deal as I see it. Everything that follows is my opinion. It is subject to criticism and the fact that I am often simply wrong. I think it's perfectly fine to stay at rest areas. And here's why. There is the letter of the law, there is the spirit of the law, and there is the enforcement of the law. The letter of the law is what it is. Pennsylvania, you've got a two-hour limit. That's it. If you're there for longer than two hours, you are violating the law. Okay, that's fine. The spirit of the law is... Well, Pennsylvania's turnpikes and highways are kind of old. They don't have that much parking, so we don't want people taking up parking too long. And maybe people have abused it in the past, so we want to make sure nobody's doing that. That's the spirit, I'm guessing. I mean, I wasn't there when they wrote the law. Enforcement, however, in almost every case, looks like this. Hmm, that car's been there for three days. We better call somebody. No, seriously. There's nobody at these places... There's nobody at these places keeping track of how long your van is in that spot. There's often nobody at these places, especially at night. There's no staff. There are cameras, but I don't think anyone's being paid to watch the parking lot. So I have never seen a cop or anybody else roust anybody out of a rest area. And like I said, that's where I'm usually sleeping. So how do we square this? Well, unfortunately... Van life is not a sanctioned activity in society. We are always going to be on the fringes. We're doing things that people don't expect, and societal rules and culture and all of that hasn't adapted yet, and it may never. Think of it this way. 
I know that in Chicago, as you're leaving the city, there's a big stretch of road that has a speed limit of 55 miles per hour. If you drive at 55 miles per hour, you are putting everybody and yourself in danger because the average speed on that road is 75 miles per hour. No, no, there's always going to be 50 cars around you and they're always going to be at least 75 miles an hour. If you're doing 55, you're 20 miles an hour slower than every other car and they're swerving around you trying to avoid hitting you. But that's the law, right? So what do you do? You, you actually can't follow the law and be safe. And if you're driving your van across country, you can't follow the law and be safe either unless you buy a hotel every night, which is part of why these laws exist, especially in Florida. And states with a lot of tourism, they do not want to give you a free place to stay because they want you to stay at places where you will generate revenue for the state. I know that's a cynical way to look at it, but I'm pretty sure that's going on in places like Florida, for sure. In other places, it's a more practical concern. For example, in the northern states, they have snow plowing to worry about. And if one of their parking lots is filled with cars every night at 3 o'clock in the morning, say, it's much harder for them to clear the lot. So that's somewhat understandable. But I think in the end, what these laws do is they give the police an excuse to harass anybody that they want to. So what does that mean for us? Don't do anything that makes people want to harass you. Again, I've done this many times. I pull into the rest area at dark. I go in and use the restroom. Sometimes I'll fill up a water can and I go in my van and I stay there. And then as early as I can in the morning, I hit the road. And I, what I'll usually do is drive to the next rest area and there's where I'll make breakfast. That works well. And apparently I've been breaking the law all over the place. I mean, Wisconsin says it's not allowed in Wisconsin, but I can tell you I've spent countless overnights in Wisconsin. And if you look on the free parking apps like freecampsites.net and iOverlander, you'll see lots of rest areas listed there. So being a van life person, being a vehicle dweller, trying this lifestyle means that you are going to be spending some time in gray areas and it's not necessarily comfortable. Me, my personality is such that I like to know that I'm within the rules and I can't be when I'm doing this. And uh, yet, with time, I have decided that I'm okay with this. Because honestly, if you are tired and you pull over to spend the night at a rest area, what are they going to do? Are they going to say, hey, get out of here? And you say, but I'm too tired to drive. Are they going to arrest you? Cops don't like paperwork. That's something that's in our favor. So, just like with stealth camping, try not to be a nuisance, and in my opinion, sleeping in rest areas is fine. Tech Talk! Hey, I have to eat a little bit of crow on this one. Alright. USB has been changing ever since it first came out. There's USB-A, USB-C, USB-B, there's micro and mini, and there's all these different things. It's complicated, but we seem to have finally, maybe perhaps, come up with a standard, and that is USB-C. I have been telling you that if you have a laptop that charges with USB-C, you do not need an inverter because you can now charge your laptop with 12 volts because there are plenty of 12-volt USB-C adapters. But I was ignoring something. 
and that is called USB PD and USB PPS. <laughs> okay, this is a little complicated, and it is okay to not pay any attention to me for this part. The bottom line is that there are times when you will want to use your inverter to charge your laptop, even though it's USB-C. All right, so you've got your USB-C. Those are the ones that go in either way. You don't have to worry about plugging them in. They're very common now. Okay, we got that. There are two other types of these USB-Cs. Same plug, but they do different things. They're called Power Delivery, PD, and Programmable Power Supply, PPS. Power Delivery is a way that allows the cable to negotiate charging rates with the power supply and can produce as much as 100 watts, which is a lot, and it is what some laptops want to charge with. So that's something that is important to know. PPS is a similar thing. It's a little different in how it operates, and it can do a charging profile, much like we talk about with solar chargers, where your batteries will do bulk charge and then enter float charge and things like that. There are USB chargers that can do that now. So, what did I just say? What I said means that, yes, you can charge your laptop with any old USB-C, including one that's plugged into your cigarette lighter, but if you want it to charge quickly... You need to use a brick, just like your old laptop, and that needs to be plugged into 110 volts in the U.S. or 220 volts overseas because it needs that extra voltage to provide all that extra power out. And, yeah, I know, I just found another reason to have an inverter. This whole show, what am I, I'm episode 76 here, and I am so much less against inverters than I was at episode one. I still think they're a waste of energy, but this is an example where you may actually want to use it. It isn't going to be as efficient, and it's actually going to put maybe a little bit of strain on your battery, but it may also take you 12 hours to charge your laptop if you don't do it this way. So I learned a little bit, and I hope you did too, and yeah. Tales from the road. This is a by request story, the folks in the Discord channel were having a discussion, and somehow this tale came up, and they asked me to tell it officially on the podcast. So, Discord folks, this is for you. And if you don't know what I'm talking about with Discord, Discord is kind of like a chat room server that we have. It is called built to go a Discord server, and there's a link in the show notes. Here's the story. In 2016, I had the opportunity to visit Africa, and I took a bunch of folks with me, as I am wont to do, and I was kind of the tour leader. And we created a subgroup, and we were going to go to Botswana from Zambia. We were in Zambia. We're going to go to Botswana for the day. A lot of these countries are small and close to each other, and such things aren't that difficult. So we got into a bus, and we headed over to Botswana. But between Botswana and Zambia, there is a river. And that river is the Zambezi River. Now, at the time, in 2016, there was no bridge across this river. And it's not a very big river. You could throw a baseball across it if you had to. But because there was no bridge, there was a ferry. And this ferry, I have to say, was a little bit comical. It was a tiny little thing. And honestly, if they had just taken like six ferries, they could have crossed the river just with ferries and they wouldn't even have to move. But what happened was, because there's only one ferry and there's traffic going both ways, there was a line of trucks trying to get across this river. And I mean big trucks. That was as much as two weeks long. 
Some trucks had to wait two weeks to get across this river, and there really wasn't any other way for them to go. A lot of the truck drivers had hammocks mounted underneath their trailers, and they'd kind of sleep there, and they would leave their engines running, and they'd cook on the engines. They had all these ways of making it work. Absolutely amazing thing, and uh, I, I'm, I'm stunned. And, and you might be thinking, well, Jeff, if you were a tourist there and it was a two-week wait, how did you get across the river? <laughs> so I'm a tourist. I don't wait. No, the buses for tourists didn't wait. They had priority. That meant the more tourists there were, the longer it took for these trucks carrying goods for the local people to get across the river. Great system. Anyway, they are building a bridge. And when I was there in 2016, they said it was going to take another five years to finish it. And I just found out that it was May 10th. This May 10th, just a week ago, well, actually, I'm a week ago from recording this anyway, that the bridge finally opened. That's actually not the story. That's just a little side note. The story is that we did have to wait a bit for the ferry. I mean, it was like half an hour. It wasn't a big deal. But the ferry has to go across the river. You have to wait. No big deal. So we're waiting there, and we had the door of the van open, and there's a security station there. I mean, it's a border checkpoint, so there are lots of police around, and they've got some fairly large weapons. And some of the people in our group were being friendly with them and had their pictures taken with them and stuff. So it was a fairly jovial thing, you know. But I noticed that they had a motorcycle with a sidecar. And what struck me was that the sidecar was on the left. Because in the United States, sidecars would be on the right. And I just it just looked weird to me. So on this trip, I was focusing on video rather than cameras. And I had a camcorder with me. So I took out the camcorder and I'm filming it. Pointing my camera directly not only at the bike but at the border checkpoint, which was also the police station. And apparently, this is a no-no. After about 30 seconds of doing this, the cops started shouting at me, and one particularly stern-looking cop came over, grabbed me by the arm, and took me towards the police station. Now, you have to imagine the scene here. Here I am, overweight, sunburned American tourist, being dragged off by the Zambian police force, while the group I was ostensibly leading is sitting behind in the van, wondering if they'll ever see me again. <laughs> well, as it happened, there are privileges to being a white American tourist, and we will not be discussing that because it's too large of an issue for this podcast, but it didn't take too long for me to talk my way out of the situation and simply explain to them that I thought their motorcycle was nice-looking. By complimenting the motorcycle and explaining how different it was than ours in the U.S. and how much I liked it, they let me go. They didn't even take my camcorder or anything like that. So it w ended up being just an interesting anecdote. But I can tell you at the time, I wasn't sure it was going to go that way, and I'm rather thankful it did. So, so yeah, when you're in Africa, don't videotape the police. Uh, they don't like it at all product review. I bought a WolfWise tent. In fact, you can see it briefly in the video I did about the different ways to shower in vans. It's basically a shower or potty tent. You've seen these before, but I wanted to talk to you about my experience with this one. They're spring-loaded tents, and you take them out of their bag. Now, I should say the bag is the size of a hula hoop. That's how these things go. These are not for hiking, but they're great for like stuffing under your bed in the van. They don't take up any space. They're just kind of big and flat. And you take them out of the bag and poof, instant tent. And you can stake it to the ground if it's going to be windy or you're going to have it set up for a long time. 
And then once you're in there, it's a nice little room that you can use as a bathroom or to take a shower in or to change in or whatever. You can also use it to kind of claim a space or to set up a tent in a campground that doesn't allow people to sleep in their vehicles. Although, you, if you're going to sleep in this thing, you're going to be in the fetal position, I promise you, because the floor space is like three by three. Anyway, the thing is great. You could even use it in a van if you had a high top. I mean, honestly, it would make a great instant shower stall. I mean, think about this. You could have your shower set up so that the shower simply sprays down into the middle of your van, but then you set up the tent and some kind of a tray or dog pool or something like that to be the base, and you could have an indoor shower only when you needed it, and it would take up no space when you didn't. That said, how much do I like this thing? Well, I like it quite a bit. I do have one complaint about it, and I want to give you this warning. It is very easy to set it up. It is not so easy to put it down. The way you have to bend it to get it to go back into the shape it originally was is complicated and non-intuitive. Now my tent is the Wolfwise one, that's the green one, it's the most common of these. Yes, I'll have a link in the show notes. Has a QR code on it that you can scan to watch a video of it, and I've had to watch that video every single time I've used this thing. It is just, I don't know, I think if you got one of these and you wanted to be quick with it, you should put it up and take it down, put it up and take it down like five times trying to get the muscle memory for it. So that can be tricky. Also, they are very lightweight and they will blow over. They're very tall and very lightweight. So even if it's slightly breezy, you do want to stake it down or figure out some way to keep it on the ground. But all that said... I like them, I think they're good to have, and they really don't take up very much space at all. So even if you just wanted to use it to store some things outside the van, it would be great for that. A place to visit. I have mentioned that I like trees, but have I mentioned that I like happy little trees? Some of you know what I'm talking about here, and that is the late Bob Ross former military badass turned into a PBS learn how to paint guru. Bob Ross is well known for having an amazing afro and all through the eighties, he had a show on PBS where he simply painted landscapes and showed you how he did it. And it was super upbeat. And the guy has a cult following. Unfortunately, he's dead, but his work lives on and you can see it and learn more about Bob Ross at the Bob Ross Experience and Museum in Muncie, Indiana. It's actually at a place called Minatrista, which is an art museum, and they have a whole section devoted to Bob Ross, and it's called the Bob Ross Experience. Now, it turns out that from 1983 to 1988, Bob painted for the show on WIPB in the historic Lucius L. Ball home, which is part of this museum's campus. And so they have turned it into a way to experience Bob, learn about his history, and learn how to paint, although there's probably a fee for that. It's only 15 bucks to check this out if you're a big Bob Ross fan, and I think it's just kind of a special little happy place that you might want to visit when you're prowling about Indiana. I'll have a link in the show notes, and I'm also going to put in a link to one of Bob's shows, because if you have not experienced Bob Ross, I definitely think it's worth a look. He didn't quite have the impact of Mr. Rogers, but it's a similar vibe. And it is actually amazing to watch him make landscapes out of knives and fan brushes. And you'll learn an awful lot about burnt umber and yellow ochre. Resource recommendation. 
when I drive, and I drive a lot, I am still a very curious person. So as I'm driving, I'm trying to figure out everything around me. Why is that bridge like that? What's that metal plate connecting that there? Why are the lights spaced the way they are? All these kind of things go through my head, and if you're a passenger in my vehicle, I will probably annoy you to death asking questions. Just ask my wife. So, I found a resource that helps answer these questions for me, although it's only for one specific thing, and that is, what do the numbers mean on all the tanker trucks and trailer trucks that are going by? The ones that have kind of the scary-looking symbols on them. Well, those are ERG 2020 numbers. They're hazmat plaques, and the idea behind those is that they tell you what's in the vehicle, so that if there's an accident, the firefighters can see, oh, there's hydrochloric acid in here, we better be careful, or, oh, that trailer is filled with gasoline, or whatever. There's a lot of information in these numbers, and so I've created a little game where I kind of collect those numbers to see all the different things that I'm passing by on the road. For example, I recently passed... 3257, which is an elevated temperature liquid, not otherwise specified. So it's just hot liquid. Or 2880, calcium hypochlorite, hydrated mixture, not less than 5.5%, but not more than 16% water. That's some super concentrated bleach. 2312, molten phenol. That one was a little scary. And of course, the ever-famous 2922, corrosive liquid, poisonous, not otherwise specified. It's just nice to know that you're driving at 70 miles an hour, three feet away from 2,000 gallons of molten phenol sometimes. Anyway, it's a little fun thing, and there are apps for Android and iPhone that will tell you what these things are. Now, it's a little awkward looking them up while you're driving. I don't recommend you do that. It will be distracting. If you have a seatmate, especially someone like my wife, who is sick of me asking questions constantly they may be willing to look things up for you. In fact, my wife now looks them up before I even ask. So again, that is the ERG 2020 app. Sounds just like that. I'll have a link in the show notes, but you can find it just by searching ERG 2020. The Aurora Project. As this episode is released, I will be on a massive 5,000-mile trip visiting auroras in the West. But before that, I had just visited three in the Midwest, and the last of those was Aurora, Missouri. Now, when I did this trip in 2019, Aurora, Missouri was the first one I visited, and the trip didn't go very well. First, on the way down there, my solar panel stopped working, and I was just learning about how solar panels worked, and it was kind of frustrating. I ended up pulling over and going to Harbor Freight, buying a battery, and then it didn't work, and then... Anyway, I had to do it without solar power, and I did not have a VSR at the time, so basically I had no power in the back of my van for that trip, except for my backup. You know how I like my backups. And then, much, much worse, my air conditioning compressor went out, and that cost me a couple of hours of diagnosis time, and then eventually $1,400 in repairs. So by the time I got to Aurora, Missouri, I was not in the greatest state for trying to experience a place. And then when I got there, everybody was gone. It was actually kind of creepy. I got there at about 5 p.m., and the entire downtown was empty. There were no people. Now, it wasn't a ghost town. I mean, you could tell there were businesses and restaurants and things there, but all the people were gone. And it took a lot of driving around to figure out what had happened. And what had happened was that there was a little league game that night, and this town 
really likes Little League, so they all were there. The whole town was at the Little League game. It was kind of charming, actually. But when I thought about how I was going to tell the story of Aurora, Missouri, it was a struggle. Some are easier than others. Aurora, Texas with a buried alien? Yeah, that one's easy. Aurora, Kentucky with all the crazy stuff going on there? Also easy. Aurora, Missouri? Not so easy. Historically, it was a lead mine, then it had a railroad. You know, it's kind of a typical story for a Midwestern town. But then everything gets very dark. There was a newspaper called The Menace published there in the first quarter of the 20th century. The Menace was a huge newspaper. It had circulation larger than any newspaper in New York or Chicago. And it was dedicated to exactly one thing, anti-Catholicism. A whole newspaper that did nothing but rail against the Pope and Catholics. And you might think now, why would they do that? And well, the answer is the same as a lot of the politics going on right now. They were afraid of immigrants. And back then, the immigrants were Irish and Italian. And what made the Irish and Italians special? They were Catholic. So this newspaper put Aurora on the map, and it didn't really give me a way to tell a good story. So I dug a little deeper, and I found out that, oh, Ma Barker of the Barker Gang is from Aurora. Nope, that doesn't help. And, oh, there were a series of grisly murders, and, yeah, no. And so, basically, <laughs> everything I could find was horrible. And I felt bad, because the people of Aurora don't deserve this. I mean, they're out doing the Little League stuff. They're not out killing people and chasing the Catholics out of town. By the way, there is a Catholic church in town, and there was one way back when The Menace was being published. So good news. On my second trip, I did find the good in Aurora, Missouri, and of course it's the people. Believe it or not, Aurora, Missouri is growing. Now this is a town that is of enough size to be fairly self-supporting. I mean, they have a Walmart, which, you know, what else do you need? But they're off the beaten track. They're not on the interstate. They're not on any real major roads. But somehow they're growing, and the pandemic actually helped them grow, which is fascinating to me. They gained businesses during the pandemic because what I'm seeing, and this is a pattern, we'll see if it persists, is that these smaller places are becoming magnets for people fleeing cities during the pandemic. And I know this was the case in Chicago. Part of the reason I moved recently into a condo near downtown Chicago is because the prices fell through the floor. And the price of our modest house on the outskirts of Chicago, but still actually in Chicago, were way up because people want to get away from cities. It's interesting. I'm going to see how it plays out. I'm really curious to see what happens in Aurora, Colorado, which is the largest of the cities I'll be visiting. But anyway, Aurora, Missouri is an interesting little case study in a small town making a comeback at a time when you'd think the odds were stacked against them. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to this episode 76. And again, I am sorry for the time shifting, <laughs> but that's how I had to do it because this is going to be a grueling trip that I'm on currently as you're listening to this, but not as I'm recording it. Music, as always, is by the recently graduated Simon Wag. And yes, folks, I do still have stickers. If you'd like a sticker, send me a note at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. And until next time... Remember the words of Seneca, life, if well lived, is long enough. <laughs>